Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Are you ready to do another podcast? Nope. No, apparently not. Are you ready? Are you ready for another Pigs podcast, Eric Ward? I'm always ready. Wait, did you say another Pigs podcast? Yeah, we are the Hoosier Hysterics, powered by Pigs. Pigs. <laughs> That's definitely the best one. Uh, I, you know, I've noticed with the plosives in peed, Pigs, peed, Pigs, peed, powered. Um, we got to be careful of that. I thought this microphone was supposed to take to deal with that. I guess we'll find out afterwards. It seemed like it was a little hot coming out with the p- plosives. Well, look, we're on peaks. We're on peaks. So we got a good one today. We do. We do. I'm looking forward to this one, and I think our listeners are going to love it. Let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you know what time it is. It's the Hoosier Hysterics, and we have, of course, another very special guest. Eric, tell him who we got. I want to get this intro done short and sweet so we can get into the good stuff, because there is so much to go over with this Hoosier legend. But today we are talking to a man who won Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana in 1998. Kind of a big deal. Huge deal. We are talking to a man who was a three-year starter for Indiana, where he averaged 10.6 points a game, 4.3 assists, 3.2 rebounds. He was a stat stuffer. He was the MVP of the South Regional when Indiana went to the national title game in 2002. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about to talk to a man that my father described as the toughest guard who has ever played at Indiana University. Please welcome Tom Coverdale. Tom, how are you? How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Very well. You know, I did want to add one thing. Eric's father, Eric, Eric had heard his father also describe Quinn Buckner as a very, very tough guard. And... His father said, yeah, but Tom could score. That is what he said. <laughs> well, it, and you could look at that a different way, too. I'm pretty sure everybody would say Quinn was probably a better defender than me as well. So, Well, b- before we give my dad all kinds of credit, and before you even start liking him, I do want to tell you what else he said. He said that 
you reminded him of Yogi Ferrell without the athleticism. Well, you know, my brother always used to tell me how unathletic I was, but I always just, you know, I always looked at that as a compliment because everybody says my brother's more athletic than me. And then I'm, and then I just say, well, obviously he didn't work hard enough to make it. Yes. Yeah. You should say, did your brother, was your brother the MVP of the South regional on, on your way to a, a national title game? Yeah, exactly. But obviously Yogi was a fantastic player. He but, was. Um, he was, as were you, and that's what we're going to focus on today. So, Tom, what are you up to these days? Can you just kind of give us, I think Hoosier Nation would love to just catch up. Where are you? Uh, how are things? How's life? Uh, I'm doing great. I uh, live in Fishers, Indiana. Uh, me and my wife, we have twins that are two years old, a boy and a girl. So life's pretty busy right, right now. And uh, I work for uh, AAA Hoosier Motor Club in the insurance department. And I'm the director of sales, so I manage our uh, insurance agents that we have in the state of Indiana. Now, so, well, so things things are busy, but things are going well. We we have to know that you're making time with the little ones. You know, are they already out in the driveway? You already doing some cone drills? What's the deal? The Hoosiers need them both, men's and and women's team ASAP. Well, we we do have a goal in our living room. My my son is starting to work on his form a little bit. My my daughter just wants to go up and dunk, so she really has no clue. But they do definitely have basketballs in their hands. We like that. Excellent. Uh, we now, have to ask you because we, we ask this of all uh, former Hoosiers who live in the state that are in the real world now. How often do people when you are talking when you're just in your daily job? How often are people just starstruck and wanting to talk to you about your success at Indiana University? Um, I I tell people it kind of depends on the atmosphere that you're in. Like if you go to a sporting event in the state of Indiana, you know, there's a lot more people that are definitely going to uh, recognize you. But, you know, it does happen a lot. And I think, you know, it definitely in the month of March, it's more, believe it or not, just because I think everybody gets back and they, they want to reminisce about days when we did do well in the tournament. And, um, you know, so I think, you know, it kind of depends on the place, but there's definitely fans. And I, I think that's what makes this state so great uh, when it comes to Indiana basketball is how passionate everybody is. So when you are fortunate enough to be on a team that was successful, it's going to carry throughout the state for a long time. Well, even before your success at Indiana, you were having success as a Noblesville Miller and you scored over 1,900 points. But what I really wanted to talk to you about was the run your team went on in that tournament in 1997, the last year of single-class basketball in the state of Indiana. Yeah, it was um, – I was a junior that year. Um, we had we had five guys on our team that were all six foot two and could all dribble and shoot. So it was – it was one of my funnest years of basketball just because I grew up with so many of the guys. Um, but also, you know, making it to the Elite Eight uh, when it was one class basketball uh, was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm one of those guys that definitely believe it should still be one class um, just because I thought that's what set Indiana basketball apart, especially at the high school level. Uh, but going on that run and getting to play in Mackey Arena when you're a junior in high school and beat a really good Gary West team and, and win a regional championship that my high school hadn't won, I think, since the 60s. 
uh, was just something that you'll always remember because in high school, it's a lot different than college. You have a whole kind of community that you grew up with behind you, which makes it that much more special. Yeah, weren't those Friday nights just incredible? Just I, I remember as a fan going to those, I did some play-by-play for the local uh, television uh, broadcast up in I'm from Peru, Indiana. And I wonder, you know, Eric and I got to go back to a tournament this last uh, season in December, but do you get it out to any uh, any high school games anymore? Is there still that sort of fervor? I know the tournament is is broken up into classes now, but is there still the same kind of uh, enthusiasm and excitement around just conference games, sectional games, stuff like that? Um, I, I don't think it's the same as it used to be, even from an intensity standpoint. But of course, when you're in it and you're a young kid, you think it's the most important, most intense thing you've ever experienced in the world. So it's really hard to tell. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, going back to a couple games at my high school, um, you know, it's it, in the same atmosphere. Um, but I think still. Still going to tournament games still gives it that same feel. I've been to a couple sectionals, and I'm actually going to go to a regional this weekend. My high school coaches, uh, coaches at Shenandoah, Dave McCullough, and they're ranked second in the state in 2A and, and still really, really close with his family. Uh, so I'm definitely going to get back into it this weekend and, and check it out and be in those atmospheres because, like you said, it is an amazing atmosphere, uh, especially around tournament time. So, Tom, I got to ask you, and we're going to get into some specifics of your career at Indiana in a bit, but when did it start for you that you were the guy that the opponents hated? When Was that in high school? Was that younger than high school? When did you become that player? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think it was more – it probably started in high school, Um but the, the crowds are obviously a lot more intense uh, when you're in college. But, you know, when, when you have rivals like Carmel High School, when I went to Noblesville and you're playing all the time and you have that rivalry and they're a really good team as well, you're obviously going to get that. Um, but I, I think it just goes uh, when, it, when it's in college, you know, I was definitely an emotional player. Um, you know, in, in my mind, if I got the crowd into the game or I got my teammates going, that, that made it more likely for us to win, and really that's all I was thinking about is trying to do every little single thing to win. And when you're in that situation and thinking that way, you really don't care what the opponent's fans think of you. So um, in my eyes, I always thought if they are booing me and don't like me, that means I'm actually making shots and making plays so that they, they don't think I'm helping their team more than ours. Was there anything specific that you can think of that you would do to opposing players? Any little tricks of the trade that you could give us to really get in your opponent's head? Little fun things that that casual fans may not pick up on? Uh, Not necessarily. I I think just trying to be annoying, if that makes sense. I think I learned that from Dane Fife. Who was... uh, you know, we tease him all the time. He was annoying on the court, but probably more annoying off. But well, we can talk about that all day. Um, but um, but I think just, you know, I really wasn't big of a talker unless they talked to me. Um, but I would definitely chest them up and kind of, you know, be right in their face, even when the play wasn't live to just try to get them uncomfortable. And, and like I said, do everything you can to help your team and and disrupt the other team. 
when I, I played basketball when I was a kid, not nearly at, at the level that you did, obviously, just through high school. But I remember, I can't remember who I saw do this when I was young, but I employed it in my high school games. I loved this move. So I was a guard, and on the free throw line, when the other team would have their guard back and like talking to the coach, you know, while the free throws were going on, I would go and just body up the guy right next to his coach like 60 feet away <laughs> from the goal and they hated that. I loved that move. That was a good move. Oh, if if a, if a kid did that in college these days, he would definitely be hated. Yes, that's, that's for a, sure. We need a guy doing well, that. Well, uh, uh, the only move I had it and at 52 going into high school, this was the end of my career. I would actually during those same free throws, I try to sneak down in the corner at the other end and cherry pick <laughs> because I was so small. I thought they might not even see me. That's good. Um, yeah, that's another good one. But now your your senior year, obviously you're a team first guy, and so that run your junior year was a big deal. But you do end up winning Mr. Basketball. You're the best high school basketball player in the nation's most basketball passionate state. What what did that mean to you then? And what, what does it mean to you now? I think at the time, you know, you, d- you don't really think about it during the season. I remember me and my high school coach talking about it a little bit before the season, but I, I think this is what made my high school coach so great is, you know, he, he eliminated so many distractions for me. So my main focus was the team, and I knew uh, if we got really far and I had a good year, I had a chance. Um, so, you know, once you win it and, and it got down – you know, to the end of the season, you start thinking about it once you're knocked out of the tournament. Uh, but it, it meant to the world to me at the time, just because, uh, you know, you grow up in Indiana, there, there was two goals I had was, you know, to try to be good enough to play at Indiana University and play for Bob Knight. But also, you know, once you get in high school, it's to win a state championship. And ultimately, when you get to that level, and you know, you're close is to try to win Mr. Basketball. So, you know, to win that and know that no one can ever take that away from you for the rest of your life uh, meant so much at the time. And, and now looking back on it, you know, every year someone wins Mr. Basketball, you can't help think back of the great memories me and my family had, uh, you know, just celebrating together that you win that award. So speaking of celebrating that award, I, I was given a little piece of information that I have to ask you about. Did you happen to hear that you won Mr. Basketball while you were on spring break that year? I did. I was in Panama City. And then did you happen to come back to fly back into the Indianapolis airport where the Indianapolis media (laughs) met you uh, to to talk to you, their first chance to talk to the, the newly crowned Mr. Basketball? Yeah, I'm not, I don't really remember the media being there, but, um, you know, I definitely found out on spring break. So I, I left the week before. Uh, I left a little late because we had the top 40 workout. I, rem- I don't know if they still do that, but, um, you know, they were talking to me like, hey, if you do win the award, the votes are coming in. Uh, you know, where can we get a hold of you? So my dad had all my hotel information. Uh, I was there with all my closest friends and we knew what night I was going to get called. So I was either going to get a call from uh, Mr. Aikman, I think it was from the all-stars or my high school coach or my dad telling me that someone else got it. So, uh, I remember getting that call and we had about 15 of my friends in the room and, you know, my girlfriend at the time had a cake waiting for me and it was just, a, 
you know, a big celebration with all of your closest friends from high school. And then when we did return, uh, this was before all the security that airports have now. But, you know, there was my high school coach and my family and, and all of the closest friends I had at Noblesville waiting for us at the gate, which was pretty special and something you'll always remember. I can also imagine that after some time in Panama City, high school kids cutting loose, coming back to Indianapolis in the real world, you might have been in a little bit of a fog at that moment. Well, definitely, because, you (laughs) you know, normally when you get done with a spring break, you're totally depressed that you have to go back to school or the regular high school, you know, routine. But to come back and know that you're going to get to do this and do that and have this appearance as far as being a Mr. Basketball and get to share the moment with your family was definitely surreal. Um, so, but uh, it was a, it was a lot of fun. So let's now, go back to talk about, because you talked about one of your goals, to be good enough to play for Bob Knight in Indiana. What were some of your earliest memories that, that stuck with you. Ward and I had the pleasure of uh, and honor of interviewing Calbert Chaney. And we were, you know, about 13 years old when Calbert Chaney was tearing it up at Indiana. And that's one that sticks out to us that like, wow, that's Indiana basketball and that's Coach Knight. What were some of the things that stuck out to you growing up? Who were your favorite players? What were your favorite moments that, that really attached you to Indiana? Well, uh, the my earliest memory, I think, is when I was seven years old and they won the national championship in 87, um, you know, watching that with my family. And then just knowing when I really got into basketball, me and my dad and brothers would watch every IU game. Um, so we were huge fans. I mean, I was one of those little kids that would throw the remote when they lost and get mad. And, you know, you probably see it everywhere today. So that's how much I wanted and dreamed to play there. So when I, when I got into high school and started doing well and, and, you know, took my earliest visit to Indiana, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year of high school, to go to a game and just experience that and get to meet Coach Knight. I, you know, it, it was probably the easiest recruit he ever got because I just said, hey, if you ever offer me, it's done, and I'm coming here and not looking at anywhere else. I love that. And when did that offer come? Well, it didn't come till the – the junior year of uh, of high school, but I'll, I'll never forget the first time I met Coach Knight. Uh, he had me and my parents come to a game uh, my sophomore year, and he said, you know, basically, I'll never forget the assistants. Hey, if we win, come down, and you'll meet Coach. If we lose, you'll probably just be talking to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, luckily they won. They took my mom around and me and my, to the, to the conference room, but me and my dad got to go in the locker room. You know, we saw the locker room for the first time, which was my first time. Um, and then we went in the conference room and, and I'll never forget coach. Uh, you know, he said the first thing he said is, well, son, you think you want to come here? And I said, yeah, I think so. And I thought that was a good answer at the time, but he said, you think so? He goes, son. <laughs> I'm not going to beg you to come here. Do you want to come here or not? (laughs) And I just said, you know, I'm 16 years old and I just got real bright eyed and I said, yes, sir. So, you know, they, they weren't offering a scholarship at that point. uh, But, you know, that was definitely the first time, you know, you're never going to forget the first time uh, you met coach just because of his presence and how, I mean, he's a, he's a big man as well at six, five and two sixty. So, you don't really see that on TV as a child, but 
it was definitely a great experience. And were you not intimidated by him? Were you, I mean, you obviously everyone heard stories about Bobby Knight and his temper and his rage, and we all saw it. But as a player who now has a future at the Division One level, was there ever any hesitation for you because of what Coach's reputation was? No, absolutely not. Just because... You know, it's just like I I equate it to the first time you're in assembly hall and go to a game, you know, and if you're the ultimate competitor, you want to do anything to play in that atmosphere or have the opportunity to play in that atmosphere. And I grew up, you know, seeing Coach Knight yell at players or whatever, but my dad got on me since I was a little kid to to push me to be the best he could be and then I could be. And then my high school coach didn't let up. So I was kind of used to that tough coaching um, so to me, it, that, that type of coaching and discipline didn't, didn't really bother me. I, it was more for just having the opportunity to play at Indiana and play in front of that crowd. And, and you know, the knowledgeable crowd that Indiana is uh, was way more appealing than me being scared about getting yelled at. So before you could have that opportunity, uh, they want you to go to prep school for a year. Can you talk about what it was like, why, you know, why they had you do that, uh, how you felt about it, and what was that experience like going to prep school before getting to Bloomington? Well, when I found out about it, I didn't even know what a prep school was, but I, I, uh, I found out when he offered me the scholarship, so I'll never forget when I got offered by Coach. He had, you know, his secretary had called our house, you know, this is back in the landline days, so... Um, <laughs> you know, Hey, you know, Tom coach wants to talk to you. Are you and your parents going to be available in five minutes? So of course, you know, you have my brothers and my parents at all different phones in the room picking up at the same time. So it's not obvious that we're all on the phone (laughs) and me, me praying that my brothers aren't going to do the worst time to try to do a joke on me, my two (laughs) older brothers. So, I coach gets on the phone and he goes, Hey, I want to offer you a scholarship to come to Indiana, but I want you to go to the prep school first. He said, you know, next year we have Michael Lewis, AJ Guyton and Luke Jimenez all going to be juniors. And I really want to space this out. So when you come in as a freshman, they're seniors. Um, and he goes, and the other thing is, is you've never played point guard before. Uh, so I want you to go and play against this unbelievable competition and really learn the point guard position because in high school, I, I did bring it up some, but I never really, I was more coming off screens and just trying to score. So having that opportunity and the more, I, I mean, I, I I said, you know, he, he, he explained the whole situation to me and he goes, you know, I want you to take a, a couple days and talk to your parents and see if this is what you really want. And I said, coach, I don't need two days. It's done. I'm coming. And uh, he goes, mom and dad, is that okay with you? And they said, yes, that's fine. So I agreed to prep school without knowing anything about it because that meant I had the opportunity in the future to have a full ride and play at Indiana. Tom, so. can, can you do us a favor and just call Keon Brooks real quick and tell him how <laughs> great it is to play at Indiana? Can you just give him a little bit of whatever it is you have? We could use a little of that. Well, I'll tell you what. If you're on that campus and you win, there is nothing like it in the world. And you guys have been there when we've had winning teams – So, uh, you know, it's, you know, even talking to my friends all the time, 
you know, from, you know, Atlanta, like Jeff Newton and George Leach are from out of state. And they're like, we knew Indiana was going to be so much fun. But when you win and go to a final four, it, it took it to a level we didn't even think it would get to, which is as far as how the fans and the students and everybody interacts with you even today. AJ Moye, who was the first person that we interviewed for this podcast, um, expressed all of those thoughts. And, and I have to tell you, AJ, uh, who has been a friend of ours since uh, we interviewed him and has been great, I, all I have to do is mention your name to AJ Moye, and I get just screens and screens of text about how much he respects you, loves you as a friend, you're his brother. I mean, he, the bond that you guys had and that that team had is something really special. Not to jump ahead of our story here, but it seemed appropriate to bring that up. Yeah, and, and AJ got married this summer, and I was able to be there. And, and he's just one of those guys that you haven't been around for, say, it's five, ten years, and we just pick up right where we left off because, you know, we we had the same, I would say, you know, mindset, but we both, you know, wanted to work extremely hard and knew we – and I think we were thankful to be where we were at. And, and that's just kind of a bond we've always had, and – you know, when he came in, it was kind of like my little brother that we got along that well. And, and AJ is one of those guys that he's a, you know, an unbelievable guy, unbelievable teammate. So we, you know, that really that whole team has really stayed in contact. And, and I think that's why we were successful. Well, when you got to IU, uh, you do have those seniors, as you mentioned, they're AJ Guyton, Michael Lewis. And, and what do you learn as a freshman coming in around such a couple of great guards like that? And Dane's there also. He's ahead of you. Uh, big man uh, Kirk Hastings there. You, and you, you did have the year at prep school against better competition, but now you're going next level. So, so what's that transition like? What are you learning day in and day out? How do you get acclimated to life in the Big Ten? Well, it was obviously a hard transition because I didn't play my freshman year. And and people always ask me, like, you know, were you in Coach Knight's doghouse that much that you didn't play because they only saw me as a sophomore or junior? And I always tell them the same answer. No, I didn't deserve to play because I couldn't guard anybody. And then that's really the truth. Um, but, you know, I knew – in the Big Ten, I was less athletic than everybody I guarded, so I had to learn how to guard with body position and strength and get stronger and be tougher than the person that was across from me. And that takes time when you're thrown into, you know, playing every day. So I just kind of took it upon myself every single day to not let anybody else guard A.J. Guyton. And if you remember him his senior year, he was an All-American. Stunned. You know, Stunned. You know, beginning of the year, he'd basically score on me every time. But, you know, just staying with that and guarding him every single day and then guarding Michael Lewis every single day, who's a four-year veteran that really knows how to play and and play the point guard position the right way. I mean, he ended his career as the all-time assist leader. So just learning as much as I could and then taking it upon myself to realize I'm not good enough, I've got to get better, and I think that year – is what really propelled me to be, you know, an all-around player. And, and I could guard really good players at the end of my career. Um, but it all started with trying to guard A.J. every day. 
Was that hard for you mentally to deal with? I mean, you were Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana. You went to a high-end prep school. You were a star and probably had been a star for many years, no matter what team you were on. And now the script is totally flipped. How, how did you deal with that mentally? It was probably one of the hardest mental things I've ever had to deal with in my career because, like you said, you're used to starting every single uh, – you know, I've started you know, my whole life until I got there. But I also think, you know, my my parents and my high school coach and, and even my AAU coach, you know, was J.R. Holmes, who's a Hall of Famer and just became the all-time winningest coach in Indiana high school basketball. So I had so much good coaching at a young age um, that, you know, I, I, I knew and I think that's the biggest difference between kids today and what we grew up with. I knew the reason I wasn't playing was on me and not, well, this coach is, is not seeing my talents or I'm doing this. So I knew it was upon myself to fight through that and get better or it's not going to work out or I'm going to have to transfer. Um, so I, I think the mindset that I grew up with my coaches and my family is what allowed me to get through that and pushed me to really become the player that could start there. So that season, you know, you're, you're watching, you're in it every day in practice, but from the bench you're watching – a team that gets even ranked up into the top 10 in the country with your all-time great coach and all all this talent. But towards the end of the season, the wheels start to kind of come off and lose three straight in the first round of the Big Ten tourney and the loss to Pepperdine in the tournament. What's what's your mentality now going forward? You know, and you're going to lose some of these great players. Kirk's going to go to the pros. What what do you think about the next three years? What's your your mindset going into that summer? Well, I knew once the season was over. Obviously, you're disappointed. You know, you're losing a lot of great players. Um, but I knew this was my opportunity that I was going to be able to play. So. That summer is probably the hardest I worked my whole college career, just getting ready for that. Um, so I, I really looked at it as, yeah, it was disappointing. We lost. But once we got into that summer, I knew this was my biggest opportunity. If I didn't take advantage of the opportunity with all these guards leaving, that it was never going to happen. So it was really the do or die moment of my career if I was going to be successful or not. Let's also talk about the other thing that was happening with the team throughout your your freshman year and then of course after and that's your first year was coach Knight's last year yeah and the tape came out during your freshman year and then all hell breaks loose after the season and leading into the next season can you kind of take us we've heard it a little bit from AJ and from Jared but can you take us into your mindset when all that was going on you you grew up idolizing coach Knight like many of us did and now he's not there. And what was that whole time like for you? It was kind of a helpless feeling because he had been the head of that program for so long. We all disagreed with it so much of what was going on and how he was being treated. Um, so it's kind of a helpless feeling. When he's really gone, it was kind of like, okay, what do we do now? You know? So, um, you know, another thing for me is – you know, I, I know a lot of players thought about transferring for whatever, but that never crossed my mind for two reasons. One was, you know, it was still Indiana to me, even though I wanted to play for Coach Knight and wanted to play for him uh, and grew up wanting to play for him. 
still having the opportunity to play there and going in to my sophomore year, I had felt like I really hadn't played for him yet as far as significant minute, minutes. And then number two, like I told some of my teammates at the time, I said, where the hell am I going to go? I just finished <laughs> – I just – I just finished a season where I played 40 minutes the whole year, you know, like there's no way I'm leaving this program to go to a mid major or anything like that. You know, no, I I've worked hard to get to this level and I'm, I'm staying here. So it was more of, sorry, go ahead. More of me, more of me trying to keep everybody there at that point than even thinking about leaving. What was your relationship like with Coach Davis? And before you answer that, I do want to just throw out one thing that I did read, that you had made the comment that Coach Davis would probably never have recruited a player like you. Can you talk a little bit about both your relationship and also walk us through what that meant a little bit? Well, the reason I said that is because he flat out told me he wouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good way to know. (laughs) Yeah, so when I was – my freshman year, he mostly worked with the big men. Um, so obviously we had a relationship, but it wasn't a close relationship. Uh, I think, you know, moving into my sophomore year and he had seen how hard, much better I'd gotten, I knew when workouts started with Coach Knight uh, that I was definitely going to play and be in the rotation, whether that was starting or first guard off the bench it was kind of known that I was, I had worked my way into the rotation. So then coach Knight got fired and he got the job. Uh, I was really close with coach tree Lord. So, you know, I'll, I'll always respect him for stepping back and saying, you know what, to keep everything together, coach Davis, you go for the head job. I'm not going to go for it. So I think that's what really kept everything together. But then once he became my head coach and, I kept getting better and we relied on each other. And I think a head coach and a point guard relationship is one of the most important things in a college team uh, that we really bonded well. And by the end of even the sophomore year, he, he, uh, you know, he trusted me enough to call plays on the fly and it kind of got into a trust relationship and, and we, he knew we were in good hands with me at point guard. So it, it kind of just grew and grew from there from a trust standpoint. Well, and, and how, how much going into that season, were you guys still taking the, the coaching philosophies and instructions and ideas of coach Knight and carrying them through with coach Davis? And how much did coach Davis or the other coaches start to implement some of their own uh, uh, strategy or philosophy? or tactics was was it was it abrupt was it kind of a smooth transition how, how did that work in practice and in games well I think defensively it was a lot of the same similarities uh, and and when you have a mindset of kids I, I think the biggest difference is coach Knight recruited a certain mindset of kid uh, that, that he knew they were mentally tough could handle adversity go through tough times and try to get better and you had to be that way to play for him. So when you have that type of mindset with kids and a built-in kind of defensive philosophy, um, you know, that was the, the similarities that there were. Offensively, you know, was a totally different system that we were learning. It was a lot more sets uh, than, the, than obviously the motion offense. So I think that took some time for adjustment and learning um, but as we got that down and into the next year, um, 
you know, it worked for up for where up. You'd add that as far as, you know, I think Coach Davis did a great job of always putting great players like Jared Jeffries or whatever and finding them different ways to get the ball uh, is what made us successful offensively. So do you think uh, Davis, he did a lot of that predicated on the personnel you had, knowing you had somebody like Jared coming in? Or were these sort of his own offensive philosophies that he'd sort of carried with him, but now was his chance to implement them with these players? I think he just kind of did it on the fly, to be honest with you. <laughs> sure. You know, but he was such a great offensive mind that he could come up with sets. And, you know, a lot of times at the end of practice, we would just be sitting there and, and the starters would be over him and he'd be on the board just drawing up different sets that came to his mind and we would run them and see if they worked. And if they worked, they were in our rotation of plays we'd run during the game. And, and I think that's what made us so hard to guard is because going into that junior year, you know, I've never been on a team that had more sets than we did. I mean, we probably had close to 120 set plays. Wow. And all we, all we did was run five on zero, and every single player knew every single play. So I could be coming down the floor and say Indiana six or whatever. We knew Indiana was the that we were starting in and there were six or seven different plays we could do out of it and we could get right into a different set without the defense even getting into it so you know I think the basketball IQ of our team was really really high and I think you have to be to uh, be able to think off the fly and memorize all of that uh, but that that's kind of where our offense went from there. Before we move totally off of Coach Knight um, the people that really know Coach Knight know that he's also really funny. Is there any story that sticks out? I know you were there in a tumultuous time his last year, but do you have any practice story, bus story, anything from Coach Knight that you can share with us that, that still gives you a tickle when you think about it? Yeah, the, the, the probably the best one is we were going to New York for the preseason NIT, I think it was, or it was a I think it was the Hall of Fame game, Massachusetts. But um, Larry Richardson, do you remember him? Oh, Scary Larry, for sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> so he had a sore back, and we were practicing right before we left for the trip. Well, it got around practice that Coach Knight knew Larry was at a frat house dancing. So we're like, how, how he found this stuff out was amazing. But – so Larry was still sitting out of practice right before. So the whole practice, he's yelling right after someone made a play. Hey, Larry, how's your backfield? You know, how was dancing last night? And just kept making comment after comment. So it was real tense practice. And we get on the plane. Nothing happens. We get to the bus in Massachusetts or wherever we are. And he always sat in the front seat, but when he stood up on the bus, it got dead quiet because you knew he was coming back to talk to somebody. So the patience of him to do this is what amazes me <laughs> to this day because he literally walked holding his back like he was 90 years old back to Larry's seat. And basically it took him probably two and a half to three minutes to get to let back to Larry's seat <laughs> Everybody's laughing, like, what the hell is he doing? And he, it got to Larry, 
and he looked at him and he started, I mean, when I talk about the biggest white boy dancing you've ever seen in your life, <laughs> in the middle of the bus, and just looked, everybody's dying laughing, and he looks at him and goes, Larry, you're an idiot. And everybody started laughing, and he literally turned right back around, held his back, and took three more minutes to go straight back to the front and sit back down. And and Larry didn't play the whole first half of that game. So. That but, is so good. Oh. Yeah, so he was just as – he got on us a lot, but he was a master at breaking the ice and, and making us laugh just as much as he yelled as well. So That is great. So let's go to your sophomore year. Well, well you oh, know, I have – Something I, from, from I freshman have, year? It's one thing on freshman year I think we should – always talk about when this happens is a season sweep of Purdue. Oh, sure. And can you talk about growing up, what you thought about that rivalry, what the Purdue rivalry meant to you as a player and what it should mean to every player, every coach, every fan? Well, I think it's the biggest thing is, is it, it, if it doesn't mean something to current players then there's something wrong with them, because anytime you get in an atmosphere of one of those games, you can tell it means a little bit more right from the beginning. So, um, but also I think it does mean a little bit more for kids that grew up in Indiana. You know, you kind of grow up an Indiana fan or Purdue fan back when I was growing up. So obviously that was a bigger game and you were dying to play in it. Um, but, you know, I think today is many summer games and AAU games and as close as all these kids are, um, you know, that's, probably the what's taken the hatred away as far as the players more than anything um but you know as far as me i grew up obviously an indiana fan it wasn't really like i hated purdue um but you know they did recruit me and then it, when it got time to offer a scholarship uh they offered maynard lewis instead of me so i kind of used that as as fuel that you know if iu and purdue offered i was definitely still going to iu but in the back of my mind, you just use that as motivation that they pick someone else over you. Who, who do you hate more, Purdue or Kentucky? Oh, without question, Kentucky. Oh, yes. Okay, okay. I like that. <laughs> now, is, yeah. that, is that based on personal experience or the fact they've had more success recently? Where's that come or from? Or the fact that they pay players to go play there and they're dirty. They're and innately they, You know, evil. whatever you want. Yeah. yeah, worship Satan. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it was more of when you play against them in college. And, and, you know, you know, we had some heated games and didn't do as well as we wanted to against them is obviously part of it. But also, you know, the fan base is hard to deal with, yeah. to be honest with you. They're more, um, more obnoxious than Purdue fans. Yeah, and when you grow up in the state of Indiana, especially when you're done playing, you know, I meet a lot of Purdue fans that are respectful and, you know, lie to my face and say they enjoyed watching me play <laughs> <laughs> but you know obviously it's just the Kentucky and you know you know I have some good friends that are Kentucky fans so it's not every one of them but it's you know it's just the whole you know Kentucky vibe that they give yeah just a lot of things that you hit on look Tom you're allowed to say that you have friends that are Kentucky fans because of what you did for Indiana University but I don't want anybody listening to this thinking it's okay to have Kentucky fans as friends unless you br oh. led Indiana to a title well game. they weren't That's it. a lot of them weren't by choice it was by marriage of a 
my wife's friends. Okay. So yeah. it's just something you got to you got to deal with. You got to deal with it. Yeah, that's a grown up thing. I misspoke. I think you wanted to keep talking about sophomore season, and and, and that's what the Purdue, the sweep, Purdue was. sweep was. Sophomore yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. But I want to talk about sophomore season and something in in particular. We we often hear whenever there is a young player for any team, we we've heard it with Romeo Langford this year at the beginning of the year that there's a moment when the light comes on, when there's a coming out party, if you will, the proverbial coming out party. And for you, Tom, December 5th, 2000, taking on number 10 in the country, Notre Dame, I think could be easily said was your coming out party. Do you remember, what do you remember about that game? Without question. And I think when people say the light came on, I think it's the first time when you are playing competitively and you achieve something that you did to where it felt like high school, if that makes sense. Sure. To where you are just as successful in a college game as you were and, and as, as well as you could play in high school. And that's when you know and the light clicks and you know that um, you can succeed and be a really good player in college. And that was definitely it for me in college my sophomore year is going to Notre Dame. And it was just kind of one of those games where I scored early and was hitting shots and it was, you know, got to the second half and kind of felt like you couldn't, couldn't miss, you know, just one of those feelings. So for me, knowing that and doing it against a really good team, you know, gives you the confidence to continue and try to continue to play that way. Do you remember what your line was from that game? I do not. I know it was 30 points, but I don't know the the rest of it. I, I got to tell you, man, that is classy. Because if that were me, I, I wouldn't only <laughs> remember it. I'd remember each stat. I would have a story around it. I'd have it put it on a T-shirt. Like, I'd wake up every morning and watch the game. You had 30 points on 11 of 15 shooting, four of six threes, six assists, three rebounds, four steals against the number 10 team in the country. How many turnovers? <laughs> <laughs> I, one maybe. I bet it was like negligible. I just this this started and and we don't have to hit every one, but we're going to hit some of them. This started a pattern for you at Indiana, where you showed up in the biggest possible games. Your performances against ranked teams, highly ranked teams, was it seemed to hit another level than your typical game. What was it about big games that you just seemed to relish? I mean, that I don't know. That's hard to kind of describe, but more just excitement. You know, I, I think a lot of kids these days, they look at, you know, this is a pressure pack game or this is a big game. And I always looked at it. This is an opportunity of a game. You know, you know, th- these are the these are the games that you dream of playing in. So I just went into them so excited and ready to play and knew if I played as hard as I could, good things would happen and looked at it more of a huge opportunity. Um, and, and I think that anybody that plays well in big games or big moments, you have to think that way. And, and, and it's more just relying on habits and everything you did and instinct instead of actually thinking about how big of a game it is. So you talked about growing up a fan of Indiana, how much fun it would be to play for Indiana with that crowd and how much fun it is when that team wins in front of those fans. So let's talk about January 7th, 2001. You are playing Michigan State in Assembly Hall. Michigan State, who is ranked number one in the country, 
defending national champions and undefeated in the season at that point. They come to Bloomington, and can you walk us through what happened at the end of that game? Yeah, it went from the most exciting moment of my life to the scariest moment of my life, and I'll, uh, I'll let you all explain. Yes. So, I'll, you know, I'll never forget, we drew the play up for Haston to get the three. Uh, it works, you know, obviously he hit a lot tougher shot than we wanted when he drew it up, which was phenomenal. The guy was all over him. Um, but he hits the shot, you know, one of the loudest sounds I've heard at Assembly Hall. So he's running down the court, and I was the first one to, to meet him, and I jumped up in his arms and kind of tackled him, and we fell to the floor. And, and I'll never forget this. We were face-to-face kind of at the bottom of the team pile, and next thing you know, when the fans charged the court, they were jumping on top of the team pile. So me and Kirk are literally face-to-face at the bottom of the pile, <laughs> and we cannot breathe, like literally – thought i was gonna die because there was so much weight on us yeah um and if that's the way you went out wouldn't have that been a great way to go (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that means i wouldn't got to play in a final four yeah yeah yeah. fair enough how how did you get extricated from the pile because i watched the clip by the way the bear hug you gave him after he hit the three you were the first one on him that was a man bear hug that was tight Tight. That was that was pure excitement, you know, not caring what anybody thought it looked like. How did you get out from <laughs> <laughs> I love that. How did you get out from the pile because it does look like a mass of humanity. I don't know yeah. how you survived it. How did you get out? I I know exactly. So we we were I mean, we were it was at least probably 45 seconds that we couldn't breathe if I'm guessing felt like an hour but we had a co- we had an assistant coach named Ben McDonald who was a huge guy and the next thing i knew is he was above the pile basically throwing kids off the pile <laughs> and then you know we both jumped up and kind of took the deepest breath and kind of looked around and then we just started hugging everybody and it was fine like it never happened so was that one of those moments where obviously you were uh you know uh, had had bigger fish to fry in your career, I'm sure that's one you think back to. But is, is is that when you look around and be like, "Yep, this is what I came here to be a part of"? Absolutely. I mean, it was to to get to a point where your team and you know going in the locker room, you feel like you can beat anybody in the country. That that's what you want to be a part of going into tournament time. And obviously, that year it didn't pan out like that in the tournament, but. Um, you know, having that feeling, know you're a part of a team and a starter on a team that can beat anybody is a good feeling. And but, we, oh, sorry, we try to keep this more um, evergreen. These interviews, we're not sure when they go up, but we did recently watch the Hoosiers beat a highly ranked Michigan State team at home. Did you get to watch that game, and did it bring some of those memories back? I did, and it, and it was definitely fun to watch, and and. You know, to, to be honest with you, you, you miss watching those games when they're that competitive against those good of teams. But I know that they're going to be back to consistently doing that in the near future. So I, I also was thinking about when you said you had 120 offensive plays. I was thinking about how many plays the current team might have. I think it's three. I think <laughs> yeah. it's three. I think it's roughly three. And I, yeah. may, and I may be being generous. Yeah. And you know what, though? I, I think a lot of that 
can fall on the on the kids basketball IQ these days. You know, I'm not necessarily saying the Indiana kids from this team, but if you're coaching a team and they can't remember that many plays, you're not going to put that any many in. Right. And I, I think it's a result of the AAU mentality that we have where you just throw the ball up and go play. Like, yeah, I think everybody does that growing up, but you know, you know, lacking some of the high school or summer coaching that you grew up with where you're learning the fundamentals like I got to from some great coaches. Um, and then you got people like Dane Fife and Kyle Hornsby and Jared Odell and who all came from great coaches and great backgrounds and, and, and Newton who was, is, you know, his basketball IQ is one of the, the best on the team. So, and then obviously Jared Jeffries had a great basketball IQ. So it was, it was more of a uh, basketball IQ thing than a coaching thing in my perspective. Let's talk a little bit about some of your teammates on that team because I want to talk a little bit about Dane. You said before that maybe the most annoying person in the world. Yeah, yeah. can we get like site one example off court of what he does that's yeah. annoying? It was just constantly the comments he makes or stuff he does. It got to a point where everybody's just like, Dane, shut up, and you just didn't pay any attention to it. <laughs> so, now, Jared... And, and I. I tell him that directly to his face. That's so. good. Jared told us there, there was a comment somebody made online that they really thought that because Dane is now an assistant coach for Michigan State, that perhaps during those years, Dane really took on kind of a leadership and coaching role on the court. And we asked Jared about that, who got real like slack jawed and and just started kind of laughing and told us that there were times during games where Dane would just get a glaze over his face and, and Jared would be like oh we lost Dane not sure when we're going to get him back <laughs> that that's a hundred percent correct so <laughs> you know it's just you know it, it he was so intense that sometimes he would lose his own mind if that made sense it does yes which you know it was just like dane come on get back with us you know and that's when he would make a boneheaded play well we're so, gonna get we're gonna get to the biggest boneheaded play in a minute here but i i want to just touch on there were signs in that 2000 2001 team that good things were happening not only the michigan state win not only your 30 point outburst against a top 10 team but at the end of the year, you go and you play Illinois, who's ranked number four in the country at the time. You turn in another incredible performance, 17 points, five assists, seven rebounds, and Indiana wins 58-56. And I believe that was in the Big Ten tournament, correct? Yes. So now, like you said, the year didn't end exactly how we all wanted to, but now we're into 01 and 02, and you've got Jared Jeffries back. You've got another year that you've had your first full year of running the team as point guard. And the year early in the year starts with you going to Chapel Hill, playing in the Big Ten ACC Challenge, and just smoking North Carolina. Yeah, I, I, I definitely remember that. And we knew we had a chance to be a good team. Um, but, you know, that North Carolina team, to be honest with you, is probably one of their biggest down years that they ever had with their program. Um, but, you know, if, if you remember that year that we went to the final four too, we started the year seven and five Yeah, and, and lost to Butler in Indianapolis, which was a really, really good Butler team that really started, I think their run of good teams, but 
you know, I'll never forget we were seven and five and me and Odell had a conversation. It was like, man, at that point, I think it had been, I forget the year, but 16 or 17 straight years, IU had made the tournament. He was just like, we cannot be the team that doesn't make it the first time. So I think it was just fighting through that and finding our way. And then by the end of the year, before we went into the tournament, you know, we were Big Ten champs and had won like 10 out of our last 12 and we're definitely playing our best basketball. So it was just getting over that hump and realizing, you know, how good we could be. Including maybe one of the best performances of an Indiana team in the last 30 years when on January 26, 2002 against top 10 Illinois, you beat them 88 to 57. Just a beat down. Yeah, and, and the, the two things you remember about that game is, you know, the amount of threes we hit and then Newton's dunk over Lucas Johnson was yes. something I'll never forget. Another game, by the way, top 10 team, you turn in 16 points, five assists, three rebounds. And then I've got to talk to you about something that is personal to me. The March 9th, 2002 game in the Big Ten tournament against Iowa – where Luke Recker hits a floater at the end of the game to beat you 62-60. Obviously, there's some history with Luke Recker in Indiana. Did any of that play into how badly you guys wanted to beat them that year, that game, or was it just he's another player on another team? Um, I mean, I think at that point, a lot of the players that were there, except for really Dane and Odell, who were seniors, none of us had played with him. So it wasn't really that personal. We obviously knew the history, um, but it was more of just, in my eyes, they had beaten us the year before in the Big Ten tournament. So it was it was personal from that standpoint. But you know, looking back on it, you know, it's it was definitely disappointing. But I would definitely take the tournament run, and I think it got <laughs> us even more focused than we already were. Um, so you, you just try to look at the positives out of it. I just want to share a quick personal story why that game is personal to me. So obviously you didn't play with Luke, and I didn't play with Luke, but I hated Luke Recker for leaving Indiana because I was at Indiana <laughs> when he left, and it really bothered me. And now I was out of Indiana living in Los Angeles in my apartment watching Indiana versus Iowa in the Big Ten tournament, which we had not had real success in the tournament up to that point. But your teams had the most success in the Big Ten tournament of any team before or since. And Wrecker hits that shot. I screamed. I was so angry. I threw something, no doubt. And then we had a bulldog at the time, and I couldn't find my bulldog. I, I thought... I, th I don't know what happened. I thought I was in such a rage that I thought I threw the bulldog. I couldn't find <laughs> him. And I went searching through. I had this little apartment, and I went searching everywhere. I thought he got out. I thought he got scared. Couldn't find him. 10, 15 minutes. I walk into the the closet to, to like, grab a jacket because I'm going to go, like, outside and walk for him, walk and look for him. And I see something in the corner of the closet. And I look closer, and I see my bulldog's underbite. 
he has buried himself in the back corner behind all the clothes, like E.T. style, because he was so terrified of the reaction that I had. <laughs> that is why that game will forever live in my mind as the moment that I caused pure terror to a defenseless dog. Well, I got another dog Luke Wrecker story for you. Oh, good. I, obviously, I didn't play with him, but uh, when I was going through the recruiting process and, and before I came... Uh, I was still close friends with Michael Lewis and they lived together. So they came to my house in Noblesville and stayed one night. And my brother came home and had a dog and this dog got along with everybody. Um, except Luke Wrecker. Yes. <laughs> so obviously he sensed something was going to happen. Yes. And my, Luke came back into the house and I was gone and he, cause he had left his baseball cap in the house and that dog would not let Luke get close to his hat. He had to leave it at my house <laughs> because it was growling, and we had never heard that dog growl at anybody before. So. That, that is a smart dog. They know. They know. They, they know. They sense evil. <laughs> All right, let's get into the NCAA tournament. So, I mean, you guys, you, you said maybe that Iowa game helped get you focused. You had lost three out of the last five games before you went into the NCAA tourney. So what's what's the prep like? What's the mindset going into those those first couple games against Utah and UNC Wilmington? What kind of coaches, like as Eric alluded to, Coach Davis had some of your, your best runs, the best runs Indiana's ever had in the Big Ten tourney, and now we're about to get into one of those most magical NCAA tournament runs. How does Coach Davis get you prepared to handle your business? I think he just kept it normal and had great game plans for us. Um, and, and mentally, the leadership we had on the team kind of got us mentally ready, if that makes sense. Because, you know, going into that year, we were the five seed and Utah was the 12 seed. And, and you know, yep. everybody makes a 12-5 upset pick. That was the popular all, pick. All the experts were picking that one. So if you need any less motivation for or any more motivation for a team that was mentally strong like we were, that's really all we needed. And I think Coach Davis knew that. So, you know, going into that, you know, I had never won a tournament game. Dane had, you know, I think maybe early in his career, obviously. But um, – we knew, and, and going into it, it was just like, we have got to win this first-round game and go from there. And then and that uh, first-round game, you put up another huge game. It's a pivotal game for Indiana. It's a 12-5 trap game. You put up 19 points, four assists, eight rebounds. I mean, just another example, and I didn't even list all the ones from the prior years. Another example of big game Tom just delivering, which is why – not to like cut to our end where we just drool over ourselves telling you how much we love you, but this is why you are, the way you played, your performance in these big games, it's why you are an all-time favorite of Indiana faithful. I mean, it is just, it was such a joy to watch because we knew, we knew that team and we knew you specifically and Dane and Moye and I mean, all the guys on the team, you were not going to back away from a fight and you had, yeah, and you had a fight on your hands. Yeah, and I appreciate that, and I think that's what some of the teams lack now, and I've talked to about it with, with some of the older friends, and I call it the F.U. and somebody, if that makes sense, and our team definitely had that. So what I mean by that is if we were ever challenged or 
you know, during the middle of a game, you know, you got challenged and they went on a run and it was kind of like you got popped in the mouth. We had that F you in us like we were right back in their face like, no, this is not going to happen, whether it was getting emotional or fighting back or playing hard than the other team. And I think that's kind of what's been missing from some of the, the recent IU teams. Couldn't agree more. Well, where did, sorry, go ahead. No, please. I was just going to ask, where did you hurt your ankle? I know you hurt your ankle coming up badly in the Kent State game, but you hurt your ankle before the Kent State game, right? Yeah, it, it was um, it was right before half of the Utah game in the first round game. So I, I, was, I was driving down. It was towards the end of the half, and I jumped up to make a pass, and just I landed on my foot flat, but it was just the sharp pain on the top of my ankle that I had never had something like that before. So it, it was right before half of the Utah game in the first round. Got it. So then you play UNC Wilmington, who had upset their first round matchup. You win seventy six sixty seven, setting up a dream matchup. The the ultimate fu game. The ultimate fu game. Indiana, the number five seed, versus Duke, not just the number one seed, but the number one team in the country, the odds-on favorite to win the title. I mean, it was like a coronation that year. Everybody thought they had the amount and the number of NBA players they had on that team is staggering. Now, we had had very different uh, (laughs) approaches, mindsets to this game when we both talked to Jared Jeffries and to A.J. Moye. So we would like to hear a third opinion from the team. What what was your mindset? What did you feel the vibe of the team was when you showed up? Before, though, Tom does that, let's just remind everybody what A.J. and and Jared's differing opinions were. A.J., hated the fact that people were just handing the game to Duke. He had like, the who are they? He had the F U mentality. Yes, going. They're just it's not Jesus and a bunch of disciples, right? It's just Duke. Yeah. Jared told us, I'm going to the NBA. I just don't want to get hurt. Yeah, just don't get me hurt. <laughs> <laughs> we Jared said, look, he's like, we had some good players and we were a good team, but I looked across that bench and thought, man, I, I mean, maybe I'm better than Carlos Boozer. Probably, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, if I was, yeah. it's not by a lot. Just don't get me hurt. Let me get my 50 million in the NBA. <laughs> what was your take going into that game? I I knew we could be competitive and I I knew if we kept it close, we would have a chance at the end. But I also knew in the back of my mind how talented they were. Um, but you know, going into that game, I looked at it, it was one of the biggest challenges I could have because I was, you know, guarding Jason Williams to start the game. And we had, uh, you know, we put Dane on Dunleavy. So, you know, it was a, you know, a dream matchup for me, you know, this guy was national player of the year. Um, so having that chance and then getting into that game, you know, I got in early foul trouble, obviously didn't do as, you know, a couple of them were cheap, just offensive. But, um, you know, I wanted to go into the game and I knew it was going to be a fight and I knew it was going to be fun. I mean, talk about a fun game to play in where the expectations are low. And if you keep it close, everybody thinks you're you did a great job. Obviously, we wanted to win. But when we got down 17, you know, it, it was like, man, these guys are good. But I think the way we had bounced back all year and kind of everything we had been through, you know, starting seven and five and how mentally tough the whole team was is what allowed us to come back. And we, 
you know, everybody says take it play by play, but it, it was, again, that F you and you, you get down 17 and it was more like at the beginning, we are not going to get embarrassed by this much. You know, it, 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 we are not going to go out like this. So it was play harder than them, everything. We're not going to let this. And it kept chipping away and chipping away. And then you start the second half and we just, we're playing harder than them again making all the loose ball plays and it just kept kept chipping lower and lower and lower. And I think our belief just kept getting higher and higher and higher. And it was the ultimate snowball effect to where, you know, it just kept getting better and better. And that's, you know, the momentum was just too much for them to over overtake. So I just want to hit a couple specifics in this game, because like you said, you got into foul trouble. You were taken out of the game with 1530 left. You had two fouls. The score at that time was six, three Duke. It was six to three when you went out. Seven minutes go by with you out of the game. The score is now twenty nine to twelve. You are brought in. Obviously, Donald Perry w- replaced you. A little bit of an unfair situation for Donald to have to deal with that pressure. The Duke, you know, the Duke talent. He he did not nearly have the composure or the experience you had. You come back in the game, and immediately come back in the game. You get a steal and an assist and kind of stem the tide. I mean, it could have easily gone from 17 points to 25 points, but you come in the game, you get a steal, you get an assist, and then you kind of tread water the rest of the half, truthfully. they You cut it down to, I think, 11 or 12. They went back up a little bit, but you were in a fight. You come out in the second half, and there everybody talks about the block. We all know about the block, the, the Moye block, was sensational. Can you give us your perspective on that block? Because then I want to talk about two plays that people don't talk as much about that are all Coverdale. But let's talk about the block for a second. Yeah, I mean, it was at a moment in the game where if anybody that was at that game knew, I mean, that was about 75% IU fans. So it's I equate it to Assembly Hall to where you get on a run and we've hit three or four threes in a row and you get back on the defensive end and it's the loudest you've heard it in a building the whole time we were on that kind of run. And I think it just cut it to four or something like that. So it's one of those all out defensive possessions when you're a player that the crowd is just totally behind you. And, and it was a scramble and, and I'll never forget AJ, you know, I don't think he even thought he could get up that high. But and and also what a lot of people don't realize is to do that with his left hand when he's right handed is pretty amazing, too. Um, but we, we got caught in a rotation and they threw it into him and he was basically wide open. But A.J. came out of nowhere and got that. And, and it was, you know, clear as day when you're on the floor looking up at that, that you knew it was clean and a jump ball. And it, and it just kept kept the momentum going and was a big turning point in the game. So now let's cut to a couple minutes later. We are down five. There's two minutes and 20 seconds left. They turn the ball over. You get the ball. You go coast to coast. I I think they turned it over. We get the ball. You go coast to coast. You get freed up at the goal. You put up a shot. It's short. It bounces off the rim to you falling backwards. While you're falling down on the ground, you give it to Jared. Jared puts it in and gets fouled and won. We go from down five to down two. But that moment, that play, what do you remember about all that and how quickly it happened? Yeah, and right before that, we had just 
cut it to three and then Dunleavy hit a three and put it back to six. And then we come down and hit one out of two free throws. So it's like two minutes to go in the game and we're still down five and they have the ball and we're like, okay, you know, we have got to get a stop here. And they, you know, like you said, they made a careless pass. We stole it. I went and, and I, I remember Duhon just running in front of me and kind of ran straight out of bounds. So I just pivoted and I was so wide open. I was kind of cut off guard short arm the shot and like you said I caught it and was falling backwards and luckily looked up and saw Jeffries wide open under the basket because you know luckily when you shoot it when we shot that shot you know the Duke players just kind of stood up for a split second which allowed Jared to kind of step right to the basket and I think that was uh him getting that in the and one and cutting it immediately back to two uh, was the dream scenario for us because, you know, a team like that, you get down five or six late and it's going to be hard to come back. Then you get a defensive rebound. You throw an outlet pass. You get the ball back on the offensive side. You dribble to the left side of the uh, left side of the floor and you are fouled. Down by two with one minute, 54 seconds left. We have not been tied since the score was two to two, I believe. You step to the free throw line. What were those free throws like with one minute and 54 seconds left? Well, I mean, immediately in the back of your head, you and I mean, everybody says that they don't know this is lying to you. You know, these are the biggest free throws of your life, yes. you know, and but you just immediately think that for a split second. And then I just remember saying, well, I'm hitting them. You know, that's all I'm thinking. Keep thinking positive thoughts and do what you've done a million times, which is shoot a free throw. So I just tried to keep it as routine as possible and just say, I'm shooting two free throws. So I just thought to myself as routine and as, as normal as possible, even though for a split second, you allow yourself to realize how big they are, but just stepped up and tried to make them as normal as possible. And luckily for me, they both went in. Drilled them, came down the floor on defense, one minute, 18 seconds left, Chris Duhon driving. Chris Duhon turns the ball over, but what people don't talk about is Tom Coverdale got a hand in there, didn't he? I think I hit his arm, to okay. be honest with you. <laughs> Whatever. It worked. It worked. He turns the ball over. We get the ball back. You go down the court on the offensive side. You run a play, and you find yourself in the post. Now, you have not hit a field goal this entire game. And there is about one minute and five or six seconds when you get the ball in the post. Walk us through those seconds. Well, I remember when the play was called and we knew what we were running. I come off the high screen and I'm in the post and I knew Duhan was on me, which, you know, same, you know, I think he's a little taller, but I knew I was a little bit stronger than him. So I knew if AJ, if I did come off and I was a little bit open, they normally don't throw it to me in this play unless I'm open. Um, and then I'd come off screens on the other side of the floor. Um, but you know, luckily I think it was, I forget who it was, whether it was Newton or Jeffries at the time that set the screen and set a really good screen and AJ threw it to me. And I knew coming down the floor, if he throws this to me in the post, I'm going to, I'm going to be aggressive and I'm going straight to the basket and trying to score. And luckily he got a good screen. I was open and I just caught it and did a post move and it, and it went in, but Going into the play, I knew if I was going to score and be open, it was going to be on this part of it. And then if not, I'm going to come off the other screens, get it into Jeffrey's inside like we had been doing. So that was really my mindset going into the play. And just know, I, I just love the mindset of a high-level athlete. 
You had not scored a bucket that game. You had missed a few. There, you had just a couple, you know, a minute earlier missed a layup. There was no hesitation on your part. You, if you got the ball in the post, you were going strong to the hole. Yeah, well, and again, I had just hit two free throws. So in my mind, in a shooter and a scorer's mind, I had just put up thirty points. You yes. know what I mean? <laughs> yes. So you, if every good scorer or shooter worried about everything they did the whole game, they'd stop shooting. So. Right. You know, I that didn't even cross my mind because I was on a high from hitting those two free throws. So you hit the two free throws to tie the game. You hit this baseline post move to put us up by two. Then we get the ball back after they miss a shot. We get the rebound. We're now up four. Please walk us through what happened next when Jason Williams got the ball at the top of the key. <clears throat> Well, it's just immediate excitement because, you know, you're like, we just won this game, you know, is what I was thinking. This is unbelievable. And then, you know, especially when they missed the first three and the time's going down and then he hits the shot and you hear the whistle and you 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 never get that lump in your throat like you just got yelled at by your parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I immediately remember getting that lump in my throat to where, like, you can't talk and you're just like, oh, my gosh. You know, like yeah. that just happened. So it was, uh, you know, that for a split second. But then, you know, you continue to think, you know, what do we need to do next? So I just remember, you know, hey, Williams is not a good free throw shooter. Like he hadn't been the whole year. And, and you know, you hear about that, you know, when even in the pregame stuff, like if Duke's going to lose, it's going to be because of free throw shooting. That's the only way they can be beat. And so... I knew deep down, like, hey, there's a chance he could miss this. We just have to get the rebound. And I tell Jeffries all the time, I have no idea what he was doing on the last rebound, but we're lucky that they didn't win the game. <laughs> he Jared, said though. he said he was thinking about how he was going to take Dane into the locker room afterward and beat his yeah. ass. Yeah, that's what he yeah. told us. He said he told us he did not move. He's like, I just no. looked at the ball. I just wanted to take Dane in, close the door. Newton was going to lock it, and I was going to beat yeah. his ass. I believe that he would have done that for one. And I do remember (laughs) saying, like, look, I went up to him before the free throw. I said, if he makes this, get it out as fast as you can, and I'm going to try to catch it above the free throw line. Because I forget how many seconds, but it was really low, like three or four seconds. Yeah. So maybe I had something to do with it, and he was thinking about taking it out of the net. (laughs) Well, fortunately, it didn't come to that. And it's, uh, I'd say, the the – one of the absolute greatest victories, certainly in my memory and most Indiana fan memory. What's it like to be in the locker room after that and on the trip home? What what kind of celebrate? How long do you well, allow? No trip home yet because you got Kent State yeah, coming yes, up. Yes, uh, back to the hotel. How, how long? How long do you allow yourself to celebrate and just enjoy this before turning to the next game? Uh, I think it, I mean, obviously the locker room is the, is the best part when you're in the tournament, you know, you, you get in the locker room and it's just the players and the coaches and the managers who's been at every single practice or situation the whole year. And and only that group knows really how hard everybody has worked with, you know, it's conditioning everything and to celebrate and be doing stupid dances and all that kind of stuff in the locker room is, is what makes the tournament and all these memories so special. And then even the whole bus ride, when you have a game like that, yeah, we were going back to the hotel and the bus rides, 
but you know, the whole bus ride, the time when we're in the hotel room together, um, was, was nothing but celebration that night. I mean, you're, you're, you're following the game on like, Hey, what's the score. But at that point, you really don't care who you're even playing in the next game until the next day. Do you, so, you, you I, just feel unbeatable? It doesn't matter who you're going to play? Yeah, exactly. I mean, anybody who gets to the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight in the tournament, you have a confidence that, hey, we can get to the Final Four and beat anybody. And especially after you beat that team, we felt that way. But, you know, I think that team did a great job all year of, you know, we kind of calmed down by the time it got back and, it was real late when we met at the hotel to, you know, Hey, this is who we're playing. Let's go to bed. So everybody went to their rooms and it was kind of trying to unwind and go to sleep. And then, you know, it was all about the next team the next day. Because, because you you knew that the greatest tight end in the history of the NFL was your next opponent, right? That was, (laughs) that was the worry. Is that not unbelievable that he, he became that crazy. So So you play Kent state and, you guys are just raining threes. I mean, it is a beautiful, beautiful sight. You're hitting, Fife's hitting, Hornsby's hitting. I mean, everybody's hitting threes. You're, you're, you start to just crush them. Then they come back. The game's a lot closer than I think people realized. But then you get really hurt at the, near the end of that game. What was going through your mind when you came down on, on that ankle then? I'm just frustrated. You know, I felt like I forget how much we were up, but it it was I think it was close to 20 points at the time, wasn't it? Yes. And and so I felt like the game was in hand, but I immediately started thinking like this better be good enough to play next weekend. So I, I remember going in the back and I tried to walk on it and I looked at the I said, I can't put any pressure on this. So they kind of carried me to the uh to the x-ray room and that what i remember about that is, is they had to turn it a certain way to make the x-ray like legit so they could only look at it and have to look at it one time mm. and i remember how painful that was so they gave me a, a pain pill and they knew i was definitely not going into the game to try to re- relieve the pain and then um, when I came back out, I think I saw it was down to 12 points. So then you get a little worried and you're trying to, you know, I, or maybe it even got to seven at one point. But just please hold on. Please hold on. And and luckily they figured it out. But um, and it was, you know, it was still a great feeling. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I better be able to play in this next thing. But but probably my my favorite story from after that happened is we got back in the locker room and and you guys will like this going back into the whole Kentucky hatred thing yeah so uh the games at Rupp Arena and and I get done and I during the celebration I said look like this is killing me and they basically said look you know we'll give you another pain pill but you like don't if you feel nauseous or anything you know let us know so I get back in the locker room and everybody's celebrating and I'm kind of just sitting there like exhausted and shock and pain. And Garl's like, Hey, let's go in another room so that I don't want someone falling on you or whatever. So, um, I go in a room, I'm sitting there with the team manager and I'm just looking straight down at the floor. And he's like, you think you're going to get sick? And I said, well, you better get a bucket 
um, just in case. So he leaves the room and I finally looked up and I'm in Kentucky's locker room. Yes. The, the last place I ever thought I'd be celebrating going to a final four was in Kentucky's locker room. Yes. So, um, he comes back in and he says, Hey, okay, here you go. I go get that out of here. I go, if I have it, if I have a chance to throw up on this floor, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yes. And I did not get sick, but if I did, it would have been on the, on the carpet and on the blue carpet and in Kentucky's locker room. Oh, I so. love that, Tom. I uh, love it. So, so you guys, uh, wait, is there, is there a party you want to talk about? Yeah. Eric? So you've won the sweet 16 game. You've won the elite eight game. Now you get a week. Now you get a week to come back to Bloomington and be welcomed by Hoosier Nation. Hoosier hysteria at its finest. What is that like coming back on campus? Well, all the players got to go out and be in the middle of all that, and I was in the training room icing my ankle. And then when I got, I had to go straight to my house and started icing there. So some people came to my house. Yeah, we heard, just to jump in real quick, so this is what Jared told us. Jared said they went to I think it was Kilroy's when they got back and people were chanting his name and it was great, but he got kicked out of Kilroy's because he wasn't 21 and he couldn't do it. So he said, well, we took the party to Coverdale's house. And that is true. So he just, I remember him calling and I was at home in my living room by myself and he said, Hey, they won't let us in anywhere. And I said, just come here. Cause I wanted to hang out with all of them, you know? Now, did I know they were going to bring about 50 people with them? No. (laughs) But I remember I sat there, and when all those people got there, I had my cousin and a couple of my brothers were literally sitting around my ankle on the coffee table, so no one came close to it. And I got to feeling so sick from those pain pills. I was up for like 30 minutes when everybody was there. And went in my room and went to bed because I thought I was going to throw up. Oh, man. So not only did they bring the party to my house, I didn't even get to enjoy it. Oh, Oh, man. Well, you know, obviously your experience is slightly different because you're trying to rehab this ankle leading up to it. But can you take us through what it's like the week of and the weekend of participating in a final four what what is the feeling the experience from obviously leaving bloomington getting to atlanta what was that whole journey like uh, the dream come true if you will uh unbelievable it's it's like you know at one breath you're excited and then in the other breath you're like i can't believe i'm going to get to do like play in this that i've watched my whole life. You know, I, I was the type of kid that kind of grew up and I taped every one shining moment. Yes. So, um, I, I was like, told my brothers, like, I am going to get on one shining moment. One day. <laughs> and they're like, you, you know, you're, you, you know, you're crazy kind of stuff. So, you know, but you know, a little bit, I'll never forget my college roommates, the whole, we didn't leave till like Wednesday or Thursday, one of those two days. And of course they not being athletes had drinks in their hand the whole week. And I'll never forget every single time I came home, they were on our porch. We had a porch at my house and they would blare you two's uh, it's a beautiful day and just hold their <laughs> drinks up. As soon as I pulled in the driveway, what, so, what, were we talking Natty light? That was the big beer. When I was there, Natty light was the beer. 
Natty Light and Bud Light, I think it was their choice. And so. are you and Tom, are you gonna tell me that between winning the Elite Eight game and the Final Four game, that Tom Coverdale did not partake in a libation? I did not. Wow. Believe it or not. All right. I was I was that intense of trying to win. You know what I mean? That I was, you know, I did not. Well, Jared so. Jeffries made up for it. <laughs> he told us that he he had a good time that that night. Um, well, yeah, that night he I'm sure he did, but just like everyone else, I, I during the week and everything, I don't think anybody was doing that. We were you were getting so ready. excited to get there, you and know. Then, and then when you you get down there, and the media and the fans and the frenzy is that like no no other thing you ever experienced before or since? Yeah, I mean it, it's. People have asked me that before, and I always say it's like take an NCAA tournament game or a Sweet 16 or Elite Eight. When you get to the Final Four, it's like times a hundred of that as far as the media or whatever. And I'll never forget, you know, kind of before Final Four games and, um, you know, before the national championship game, you know, we they took the whole starting five and the head coaches of each team. And when you went over there for media, it wasn't where you all lined up on one row. You each had your own room and they had you for like two hours. Wow. So you just see a constant flow of all these people you watch on TV. And as a 22 year old kid, that's still pretty cool. You know, it's incredible. Before we get to the final four game, everyone that we have talked to so far on this podcast spends time talking about, a guy that, in addition to Coach Knight, which you were lucky enough to have a year with, the one guy that people talk about as being the glue of the Indiana program and central to its success and identity is Tim Garl. And clearly you spent a lot of time with Tim Garl, especially in this Final Four run and getting ready for it. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what your relationship was like with Tim and what he means to you in Indiana basketball? Uh, I think he means everything. When they talk about the glue and all of that, they're 100% right. What what a lot of people don't understand is, is Garl is more like a teammate than the coaches because when you're in the training room and, and around the locker room and he's doing all this stuff for you, you know, he's getting you healthy, but he's also a friend, more, can be more of a friend than an assistant coach, if that makes sense. Sure. So he can always tell from a personal level, if you're not ready, like, hey, what's going on? Everything okay? And can be more caring or whatever. And as far as me, in the whole uh, week of the Final Four, I mean, I did live with him for basically 12 hours. And he had, I mean, when we had one of those ice boots, and I had a manager that lived with me and literally even during that time, that manager was waking me up at, you know, every three hours in the middle of the night and, and refilling the, the ice bucket so that it was constant cold water on my ankle. I mean, that's the level of commitment managers have as well as Garl. And I mean, he was there all, all days of the night, you know, I was there first thing in the morning all the way through. So, you know, I definitely wasn't going to be able to play if he didn't put me through everything. I mean, we were trying to speed the ankle, you know, ankle healing process up, you know, as fast as we could. And he did it better than anybody could. So you play Oklahoma coached by 
the arsonist. That's what we call Calvin Sampson on this show, the arsonist, because he <laughs> set fire to the Indiana University program. But you play Oklahoma, who is obviously a higher seed, favored Ranked, in the game. Ranked number three. They're no slouch either. No. And you guys basically just handle them. I mean, it's a tight game for a while. Well, they were up. The Oklahoma was up the the whole first half and going just, and going in into the locker room. But you guys took control in the second yeah, half. Yeah. What what was what happened in the locker room? What, why were you able to come out and just take care of them in the second half? Uh, I think just because we had been there before, you know. And I think the the thing I remember about the second half is we just kept saying, "Hey." This stays close. We know we're going to make plays at the end. We don't think they're going to. You know, we had been in close games and made big shots, even in the Kent State game. You know, when you're up 20 points and it's cut to seven and Dane hits a big three, I mean, that's a big shot. You know, so we knew we had multiple people that could make big shots. And and even in that game, Newton stepped up a lot and Donald Perry had an unbelievable game. So, um, you know, it, it just got to crunch time and I think it was a belief in ourselves, and we made more plays than they did down the stretch. So, and then you look at the championship game and it's the total opposite of that. So you have the confidence in yourself to make those plays until you don't. If that right. makes sense. How much does it kill you, Tom, when you think back, how much time do you spend thinking about your ankle and what might have been if you were fully healthy? I really don't spend much time about the ankle as much as the last eight minutes of the game because in my eyes, I was able to play. Um, yeah, I wasn't 100%, but it could have been worse to where I couldn't play. But I, I always go back, and the regrets I have is things I could have done differently in the last eight minutes of the game when we did take the lead with eight minutes to go in the championship. And being that close, you know, what could we have done different? What did I do wrong? You know, what shots did I miss is more what I think about as far as instead of, you know, what what could have been, you know, because it, it, it is I was in the situation I was. There's nothing I could really change about it. Well, and how often do your thoughts go to that and those regrets compared to the magical run that got you there? Because I can say I spend a lot more time thinking about the Duke game and just how fun it was to gather with other IU friends out here in L.A. and watch that whole run. I think about that a lot more than I do the end of the championship game. How was that for you as a player who went through it? I think the biggest and the hardest time for me is all through March and watching basketball, you think of all the good things and everything you got to accomplish. But every single year when I watch the championship game, it's it's still fun to watch the game because you're looking at it, but it's hard for me to watch teams celebrate, if that makes sense. It, Tom, so, sure. yeah, it the, not the, only the, makes sense, I can't watch championship games if indiana isn't playing in them i can't do it same i cannot do it it drives me out of my mind and i never played (laughs) so i can't i totally i think i understand it i guess is what i would say yeah see i'm i'm totally different with every other sport like i'll stay up and watch a team celebrate an nba championship you know the world series the super bowl unless the patriots (laughs) amen brother uh, amen brother (laughs) you know but all, I always enjoy watching people like experience the joy of winning the biggest stage that they can get. But when it's the stage that I was able to be at, it's hard for me to watch. 
Let's wait. Wait. What? I well, I I get asked now. Is it so hard to watch the Patriots because you're a Colts fan? One, yeah, I'm a huge Colts fan. My man, my man. Ward it's, is just dying to meet I, Colts fans on this podcast. I just, I just try to, I just try to, you know, unite us. And and obviously things are headed in the right direction there. So hooray for that. Yeah, me and my wife are season ticket holders, so I love going to those games. All right, all right. Let's move back. I want to. We're going to skip over the championship game. Eric's starting to like the Colts now. Just I'm wearing them down. You are wearing. He's me from down. St. Louis, so now he doesn't have a team. It, it so sh- he's going to be a Colts fan before we're done. I've got two teams in L.A. I can root for. You don't want those okay. teams. All right. So I don't want to talk about the championship game, but here's what I do want to talk about: your senior year, big game, Tom. You're healthy. And you get to play the team that you played in the championship game. Revenge. In Indianapolis. Revenge. You're healthy. Walk us through your thoughts leading up to that game. Are you are you are you more focused on that game because of what happened the year before? Do you want revenge? What's going on in your head? One hundred percent. You know, when the schedule comes out, that's the one you look at. And I was telling her we get to play them again. And I didn't care that all the seniors for them were gone. But, you know, if you think about it, Blake, who I guarded and he guarded me, it's the same matchup as far as I was concerned and my individual matchup. So that's kind of the way I looked at it and circled it. And that that game was probably my favorite game looking back on my career besides the tournament run that I got to play in because it was at, you know, Banker's Life where the Pacers are now and – and just having that memory and that facility is something I'll always remember as well. And let me also refresh everybody's memory. In that game that Indiana won 80-74 to 74 in overtime, Tom Coverdale poured in 30 points, 5 assists, 6 rebounds, 4 steals. Another big game, another big game performance. Your senior year... Uh, had some other moments. You beat number eight Illinois. Obviously, you lost Jared Jeffries, and it was a different team. Uh, and then your career at Indiana comes to to an end. Uh, I do want to point out one thing that I'm not even sure you may have even thought about. Indiana has struggled mightily in the NCAA tournament and the Big Ten tournament. In the Big Ten tournament, Indiana's total record in the Big Ten tournament in 21 years since it's been around is 12 and 21. That is our record. We've only won 12 Big Ten tournament games. Tom Coverdale played for three years as a starter at Indiana. He won five. Your record in the Big Ten tournament is five and three. You have five of our 12 Big Ten wins. Pretty amazing. And again, I think a testament to what you are about and and just how you perform in big games. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. And like I said, that's that's what made our team so special is that we were able to perform in those big games. You know, no one really remembers your regular season record. It's about Big Ten tournament, NCAA tournament, and I was lucky enough to be on teams that, that were successful. So I, I'm very thankful for that. Well, and, and you go from being a star of one of the biggest programs in the country – playing on the biggest stages. And then after leaving IU, you, you, you grind it out a little in the CBA and then over in Germany. What was, what was it like to go from the highest of highs being on a final four team with IU and now, and now you're grinding it out um, in relative obscurity. Did, did, did that affect your relationship with the game? 
Um, I mean, a little bit at the end, but at the beginning and being able to experience that, I'll never forget telling my dad, like, can you actually believe my profession says professional basketball player? <laughs> I was like, it's on your LinkedIn I, profile. I was like, I was like, I do not care if it's not the NBA right now. Like I, you know, I'm getting to do this and actually getting paid. So, you and, know, to me, it was, it was, it was such a blast to be able to do that. And at the end, when I stopped playing, you know, I knew I could have been a guy after being over there that could have stayed in Europe for probably 10, 12 years. Um, but I knew I wasn't going to make the NBA. And so for me, uh, I wanted to get into coaching at a young age and be back in the States around my friends and family and stuff like that. So, uh, I definitely glad I tried the CBA and Europe so that I didn't have any regrets later in life, but I kind of knew after being away from Indiana that it's never going to be the same as being able to put on the Indiana uniform. Before we leave Bloomington, a couple quick rapid-fire questions. Favorite pizza in Bloomington? Hotbox. Wow, okay. We have not had a hotbox choice. Well, and, oh, and, yeah. And, I mean, of course, it, it was still the, the Pizza Express mostly when you were there, right? Well, yeah, Pizza Express. And, and every one of my ten. teammates will tell you that you better get extra ranch for Cub. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Favorite bar? Uh, Nick's. Nice. Uh, f- worst, most hated class that you took? Statistics. Did you? How did you do in it? I got a C, and I still don't know how. <laughs> do you think it had something to do with the fact that you could hit a three? I have no idea, but I had no idea what was going on in that class. Okay. And uh, favorite um, Bloomington moment non-basketball related? Oh, man. Probably my dad coming down to visit me for my 21st birthday. Did you go to Nick's? No, I couldn't go to the bars at that point because I had just gotten in trouble. So (laughs) I got to hang out with him and my friends in my apartment on my 21st birthday. What was the apartment? Colonial Crest. Oh, I know it well. I know it well. Yeah. Um, We we always ask at the end to talk to former players to give us a sense of the current team and the current staff. Yeah, I mean, you played through the Knight and Davis era. You played against and saw what the arsonist did to the program, and <laughs> then and then now you've 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 been a fan and watching you know the program through Tom Crean, and now and now we're in the new era. W- what's your take on it? Where's it going? How optimistic can we be? Well, I mean, it's really hard to tell. I think everybody's so quick to judge coaches when they're hired. And they're like, well, what do you think about Sampson? What do you think about Miller? And I I always say, well, you know, like when I met Archie Miller, you know, and I went down there for the reunion and everything and got to spend time with him one-on-one, I really, really like him. You know, but I'm always tell, you know, liking a person and how they can coach is totally different. Now, do I think he can turn it around? Yes, 100%. I think that he is a great coach. I love that he's a defensive-minded coach. But at some point, we got to get some players in here that think and, like we talk about, have that FU in them. Whether And I don't know if you can necessarily instill that into players, but I think, you know, as far as recruiting, we've got to get some of the people 
players with the same mindset as that. So I think that we're going to get there. He's getting some really good recruits um, that are coming in there, but I, I'd like to see him recruit some kids with the the mentality that it's going to take to win. I think we got one of them in Armand Franklin. I think Armand's okay, got a good. little bit of that in him. I was going to ask you, have you seen Trace play in person? I have not. Okay. But I, I do tell you one person that I'm a big fan of, and that's Robert Fennessy. Yeah. So um, I think that he's got the FU in him to win, and he's going to be a staple of this team for four years. And, I mean, just look at the end of the last game and his defense. You don't have that unless it's a mentality. So I think, you know, Archie Miller, you know, he is going to get there. It's going to take time, and he's going to have to get his own guys in there. And him being defensive-minded is going to, you know, I think you have to have that to win championships. And if we can get some more guys like Fennessy in there that's, you know, team first and will do anything to win as far as hustle plays, and, and he's got that down the stretch gene that I like too. So he, I, I think he is a great start for our future. Uh, this is something we usually ask at the top, but I'm going to ask you now because you brought up that uh, your teammates would have said, make sure you get extra ranch for Cove. Cove is obviously <laughs> your nickname. Nicknames are used by people that are friends. Tom, can Ward and I refer to you as Cove because we are friends now? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, got it. <laughs> I love it. Tom, uh, thank you so much for taking this much time and walking us through uh, memory lane with you. And for, for just giving us these great memories that when times are tough, and they have been since you left the program, there's been – ups and downs but a lot more downs and and being able to think back to this stuff and now talk to these times with you i think it it helps us and hopefully our listeners understand what indiana is all about and the heights we have to get back to and that we as a fan base cannot accept anything less than getting back to the level of basketball that you and your teammates were playing at and i would add to that we can't accept anything less than the way Tom Coverdale played the game. Forgetting about how skilled he was and how skilled you were, Tom, the way you played it, the FU in you, the way that you loved Indiana, the way you represented our school, it just gives us joy. And and I go back and watch the games that you played in all the time. Uh, thank you for everything that you did for Indiana. We love talking to you. And we are definitely going to bother you about coming back on the podcast to talk to us again because we just like our buddy Cove. All right. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll get that back there soon and we'll be doing this again over a, a Final Four or something someday soon. Well, and when we come to Bloomington, we're going to take you out and get some hot box. <laughs> I guess it was Pizza Express back in the day, but now that it's hot box, that's what's around my house. All right. Well, yeah, our we'll, treat. Yeah, our treat. We'll, we'll hang out with Cove and eat a Big Ten special. That's right. All right. Well, sounds good, guys. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much, Cove. That was awesome. Tom Coverdale's oh, a great dude. Cove. Great stories. Bobby Knight dancing, white man dance. Oh, I could see it in my yes. mind as he told the story. The commitment to it. Uh, Ward, what are we doing here? Just having a good time talking to Hoosier legends. I hope our listeners, enjoy if they're still listening, clearly they have to be enjoying it too. I try to respond to everybody on Peegs that leaves a comment about us because I don't take it for granted at all that one person listens to us. So we try to respond. And, and I always say, I kind of use it a lot, but 
if anybody listening to this enjoys it one-tenth as much as we enjoy doing it, it's the most enjoyable podcast you could ever possibly listen to. And that's why it's on Peaks, because they only they only mess with the best. They only, and, and us. And us. Well, yeah. They mess with the best. We, we provide an avenue to these incredible players. Yeah. yeah. They mess with the best. Um, and us. And <laughs> that's That's it. a good tagline. Powered by Peaks. <laughs> listen, make sure you follow us. Uh, on Twitter, at Hoosier Hysterics, no vowels and hysterics. Got to buy that guy out. Got to buy him out. Uh, send us an email at thehoosierhysterics at gmail.com. We've got more interviews coming up. We want your questions, any suggestions. People are starting to make suggestions on who we should talk to. And if you know them, hook us up. Yes, please hook us up. Uh, this is so much fun. Talking to Coverdale, he's an all-time favorite. Whenever we talk to somebody, they become my all-time favorite player. So Cove is now my all-time favorite player. That Mount Rushmore is getting crowded. Yeah, there's 27 people on it. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks for listening.